0: I was speaking at um, Union College, oh, several years ago, and uh, it was athletic day at this Christian college, and um, and all the athletes would always sit in the very back of their big auditorium on the campus because they all wanted to what? Sleep during chapel. Well, I was told that, <clears throat> and it was a big chapel, big university, and. And um, so I, I asked the, the sound guy, I said, um, I said are you going to be okay if I wander around? He says, yeah. I said, good. So they introduced me and I wandered all the way to the very back of the auditorium and I had everybody turn around in their seats so that the, all the athletes were on the front row. <laughs> and um, so today, I'm as close as I can get to you today, is that all right? I appreciate that. And Kurt, thank you so much. Um, you've been a great brother-in-law, and, and he's a slave master. I sound like this because he stuffed me in a, uh, in a shed out back of Peggy's house that hadn't been touched in like 40 years. <laughs> and so you can imagine what was in that shed over 40 years. I should have wore a mask. Linda told me to wear a mask. I did not. So forgive me this morning if I sound like this. Uh, it's a joy to be back here at West Gantt. Uh, it was a little over a year ago that we celebrated the life of Peggy here. And thank you for your support for the family and for Peggy for all those years. She she genuinely loved this church. And uh, I want you to know in the world in which we live today, to have people who genuinely abide and love the local body, the church, it's becoming more rare and rare and rare. So thank you for your faithfulness uh, it's been a testimony to our family and certainly appreciate that. So, what happened, and this is why I'm here today, we're taking care of Peggy's house, but I jokingly told my wife, Linda, that I said, You know, we've been back to West Camp several times over the years and I've never had a chance to preach in your church. I said, You know, one of these days it'd be kind of nice to do that. So, I go do my other stuff and then I walk back in the bedroom. This is what? Wednesday? I don't know, Marshall, when you got the call. So Wednesday, I walk back into the bedroom, and there's Lynch. She goes, well, by the way, you're preaching Sunday. <laughs> I said, okay. So <laughs> I had to put something together fairly quick, but I appreciate it. In your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 16. And we're going to be there this morning. I know for Hope, Hope, it's great to see you. We're staying with Zach and Hope. Thank you for your hospitality. Hope didn't ask me about my sermon. She didn't. She she could have asked me about the content, what all I'm going to talk about. The only thing Hope said was, uh, how long are you going to take? (laughs) So give me about 30, 35 minutes, and we'll be through Psalm 16. It was about a year ago that um, I was in my church down in Alabaster. We have a huge uh, foyer area. We call it the atrium area. And it's where people gather between the services. And, um, and I was wandering around out there, and someone asked me this question. They usually ask, we ask each other this question all the time. They said, they said how are you doing? And um, our common response is what? I'm doing good, right? When your life could be a wreck. We just don't want anybody else to know our life is a wreck. But we'll say those comments. Oh, it's good. But it was interesting because I said, I'm good. And they said, are you okay? It's the first time I ever had anybody come up to the pastor, a pastor, and not just ask, are you good? But after I said, I'm good to say, are are you really okay? And maybe for the first time in a long time, I was honest. And this is what I said to them. I said, oh, I'm good. I said, it's been a long, difficult summer. I'm tired of going to funerals. I'm tired of the suffering that people of God are experiencing. I'm tired of the rhetoric and division in a country founded on principles of God's Word. I'm tired of the feeling I get every time I hear about a friend who is going to the ICU. This season of life for all of us, I told him, has been tough. Amen? It's been tough. And the longer I live... I want it to get better, but I know because of sin in this world that Jesus is going to have to come back, right? So things aren't going to get better. They're only going to get worse. So we have grandchildren now, and everybody said, hey, it's going to be the greatest thing in life. Well, I had two two of our grandchildren once by myself one day, and it was not great. (laughs) I suffered that day. I was tired at the end of it. And I worry about them. Our grandchildren, what is the world in which they're going to grow up in? And so after that conversation with that individual in our church, that week I went back to my office and I did a Bible study for Rick. It really wasn't for you. It wasn't for the congregation at Westwood. It was really for Rick. And I remember sitting at my desk, and I wrote these words down. Rick, how can you find joy in the presence of doubt and fear? How do you do that practically? And Marshall knows this. Sometimes there's a misconception out there among the body of Christ about us pastors that we're perfect. Well, ask my wife. She'll tell you that I'm not to begin with. And that we have it all together, that nothing really bothers us because In essence, we have to be on our A game for everyone else so that everybody else can be good. And it's hard. It's really hard. So I wrote this Bible study for Rick, and if you don't mind, this is how the Bible study went, and I'm just going to share it with you today, and hopefully it resonates with some of us in here. David prayed this prayer in Psalm 51, and he said these words, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. So the question for me, even today, a year removed from what took place in that atrium, is Rick, how do you genuinely, honestly, for real, find joy with the things that are going on around us. I had the great fortune years and years ago. I used to stay at my grandparents' house up near Chicago, a place called Valparaiso, Indiana. And um, Grandpa was um, kind of the patriarch, if you will. And I grew up in a small town called Francisville, Indiana. And there was only two churches. And everybody went to one of the two churches. And um, Grandpa was a great man of God. And he hosted people. Grandpa was well off, and, and he sponsored a bunch of folks along the way. And I happened to be there one summer when I met a woman um, by the name of Corey Tim Boom. stayed in Grandpa's house while we were there, and she was speaking someplace up in Chicago, and um, I met her. And um, she is I don't know, probably some of y'all, because our age is in here, knows who Corey Tim Boom. But she lived through the worst of World War II as a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. It's called Ravensbrück. Thousands of prisoners there, mostly Jews, were slaughtered. She was part of being there when all that happened. She said these words, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. God. Corey's life was a picture of joy, if you ever read any of her books, in the presence of doubt and fear. Her family hid Jews from the Nazis, which became known as a hiding place. She was put in prison with her father and sister. Her father and sister both died in prison. And after the war, she tracked down one of the officers at Ravensbrück and, to tell him that she actually forgave Pretty awesome, right? Never be afraid to trust in a known God. Psalm 16. So this is the title of my Bible study to me. It was called The Path to Joy. Let me read Psalm 16 and then we're going to dive into it really quickly. This is what it says. This is David. He writes, and we know about David. He was a confused man (laughs) um, to say the least, but God said about David, he was a man after my own heart, after my own heart. And this is what David writes. He says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7 I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to show. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence, in your presence, God, is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. I've got four things Four things, four tools, if you will, that will help us in this thing called how do I have joy in the midst of everything that goes on around us in the lives in which we live. Here's number one. A path to joy. We must have a present relationship with Christ. Not a distant relationship, a present relationship with Christ. In verse one, David says, "'He is my refuge.'" In verse 7, he says, he is my counselor and my instructor. In verse 8, he says, he is my protector. In verse 11, he says, he is an abundant joy. It's the picture of walking with a holy God who does all these things for us. So many Christians look at their relationship with Christ as a date on a calendar in the past where they made a profession of faith. Jesus. Amen. Praise God. But let me just tell you, it has to be more than that. It has to be more than just me going back and saying, on this date, I accepted Jesus. My question would always be, so what is Jesus doing in your life today? Are you living for Him? To have that kind of relationship that's present, there's two things we got to have. It's like a marriage, you got to be able to communicate you got to have some faith, right? you got to be able to talk and communicate, and you got to have faith. This picture of communication, what does it look like? John 15, 5, Jesus said these words, "'I am the vine, and you are the branches. "'The one who remains in me,' which literally means "'the one who remains, the one who continues "'to be present in me, and I in him, "'produces much fruit, but apart from me,' he says." You can do nothing. In other words, when you're present with me on a daily basis, I will promise you you're going to do a lot more than you could without me. Because with me, you're going to produce fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. And then you've got to have faith. Faith is what he has promised, and faith is what he has called you to be. By the way, as a Christian, he has called me. This is one of the most awesome things in the world. He's called me to be a co-heir with Christ. Me. sinful me. The guy who who walks this life and makes mistakes along the way, he's called me to be a co-heir with Christ. It's hard to believe. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Think about that. Every one of God's promises is a yes in him. As I am present continually in Christ's life, in him and mine, his promises are a yes to me. In Romans 8, Paul writes these words, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's hard for me to fathom (laughs) that I'm a co-heir with Christ. It's hard for me to understand that. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself. Through love. What kind of faith do I really have when it seems like the world around me is just falling apart? And by the way, everyone in here could count several things if we think about it in our lives that have been difficult or are difficult today. David was described, as a, I have mentioned before, as a man after God's own heart. His relationship was always in the present. And by the way, it was always in the present whether David's life was good or bad. Because there was parts of David's life that was great, right? Slaves Goliath. There's a part of David's life that was horrible. He had someone murdered, committed adultery. And yet, through it all, God says he's after my own heart because he was present. So we have to have a present relationship with Jesus. That's one of the things that helps me in this path towards joy. Without that, the rest of it doesn't work. Amen? We have to have that. Number two, we have to have a partnership with other believers. Look at verse 3 in chapter 16. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. I've said this many times when I've been at funerals or someone has passed away, and we go meet with the family. <clears throat> and we have a large church, and so not everyone in our church is involved in a what we call a small group. We call them life groups, Sunday school, right? And for those families who are not connected in, other than in worship, which we're thankful for, but they weren't connected with other believers on a smaller scale where we looked after each other, where we cared about each other. I felt sorry for them. I really did. Because by the way, whether we express this or not, we need each other. God didn't put me here to be alone. He put me here to be around people. Now, I may not like some of those people, amen? But he put me here for those people and those people for me and not to be a Christian, and not to have a fellowship. I can't understand how this world can function, and the hurt and the pain that would always be present. It's about community in our, in our lives. What kind of community do I have around me? I love the story. Linda and I had a chance to go to Israel. Our son Jordan was playing professionally over there in Israel several years ago, and Len and I got the chance to go, and so we're touring through Israel. And by the way, if you ever have a chance to go, if you ever have a chance to go, go. But here we were on the Sea of Galilee, and we go up to this, this little town on the very northern part of that Sea of Galilee, and it's called Capernaum. It's where Jesus, it's kind of his base, his home base of ministry was there. And here's the story in Luke chapter 5. It's the story of this paralyzed man. So Jesus is preaching and teaching in this small computer. By the way, when you get there, I I know sometimes we think they had large cities, but I mean, I can almost throw a baseball from one end of the city to the other. And they had this excavation that was going on, and And it's crazy because in the middle of of the city of Capernaum where this excavation is going on, where you see these little places where during the days of Peter who lived there, man, this is where their homes would have been. There's this Catholic structure. There's There's this Catholic church built over some of the top of it. Just crazy. But where were you there? This is what took place back in the day. There's a story of this paralyzed man. In verse 20 of, of Luke chapter 5, so these guys are trying to get to Jesus because they have, they have a friend who is, is cannot walk, and they're trying to get to Jesus because they believe in who Jesus is and the miracles that was taking place. They want him to get in front of Jesus, and there's no room. They can't get in the door. So story goes, they go up to the roof, remember? They go up to that thatched roof, and they, they, they pull a hole out, and they lower their friend into that hole. And this is what Jesus said. I love this. Verse 20 of chapter 5 of Luke. Seeing their faith. That's more than one, right? Seeing the faith of not only the paralyzed man, but the faith of those friends who were willing to cut a hole in somebody's roof and lower him down. Seeing their faith, he said these words, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then after he healed the man, Jesus told him to get up Pick up your mat and go home. Everyone was was giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe. Community. We need people around us to help us through this life. When we share the burdens of others, we will see the awesome touch of God in their lives and also yours when we share those burdens. Who are the people that we surround ourselves with? with are they kind to people and when it going gets tough there is something that they're going to do that shows faith in their life and encourage you present relationship with jesus with christ a partnership with other believers here's the third path to that joy a posture of praise Verse 7, David said this, I will praise the Lord. In verse 8, he said, I keep the Lord in mind always. In verse 9, he said, therefore, because I praise the Lord and I think of the Lord always, because of that, he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. By the way, that is praise and worship. That's what it is. That is praise and worship. In worship, who do I praise? The Lord, because of everything he's done for me. When do I praise? David said, always. And why do I praise? Because it makes my heart glad and my spirit rejoices. Even in the most difficult times that can take place. Somebody asked me once, well, Rick, give me the definition of worship. I was at a football game, okay, in Arkansas, never forget it. I was playing for a Christian basketball team back in those days, and we were playing the University of Arkansas's basketball team the next day. That night in Little Rock, they had a game between Arkansas and somebody else. I guess they played in Little Rock one one game a year back in the day. We got tickets. We're sitting in the stands. Next to me in the seats were three gentlemen, three men, wearing three-piece suits, every one of them. I mean, they were decked to the nines. They looked sharp. On top of their head was a hog helmet. You ever seen those things? I mean, we're SEC country, right? It's a carved out, it's a, it's a plastic thing. It was about that big, red. It was, a, it was a razorback hog that had a hole cut in it, and they put it on their head. And they were going to... Ta- they, listen, they could care less what anybody else thought. The only thing that mattered was what? There are Arkansas Razorbacks, right? I can go to an Alabama football game, have. Don't like to because there's just way too many people. And you know what? Here's the crazy thing. At that Alabama football game where they are so passionate about their team, just like South Carolina and Clemson, we got a rivalry within the family, you have these people that their life could be crumbling around them. There could be a divorce that's right around the corner. There could be sickness of cancer in their, in their home. You could have all these things, and for four hours, nothing else matters but that football game. By the way, that's worship. They're just worshiping the wrong thing. Amen. See, when when we come to a genuine worship with God, nothing else matters in our life. That's what worship is. That's the definition of worship. It's when nothing else matters. See, the message of praise is a simple one. I put my trust in you, God. Not in the world around me, not in my job, not in my family, not in my possessions. Praise is, I put my trust in you. In that verse 1 of chapter 16, David uses the word refuge, which literally means trust. He says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. He's really saying, protect me, God, for I put my trust in you. I don't put my trust in anything else. That's what praise is. I put my trust in you. So how do I praise him through this doubt and fear? Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery. Moses not being able to, to, to go to the promised land. Job, who lost everything. Jonah being swallowed by a fish. David fearing for his life. And I could go on and on and on in the scriptures of those who had difficult times. Hebrews 12, the author writes these words. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Literally that word thankful is a picture of joy. Let us be joyful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. A posture of praise will always bring the proper perspective in your life. How do I know that? Our office manager Her name is Barbara Singranelli. She's an Italian. Barbara's how old, honey? 75, mid-70s. She's our office manager. Everybody in the office loves Miss Barbara. Okay? She could run for mayor and she could win. She's that kind of woman. Been there for a long, long time. Year and a half ago, two years ago, her husband Ed, who was a former pastor, retired. Ed comes down with COVID. Actually, she got COVID. Ed did not want her to have to suffer through COVID alone. Ed had some other complications in his life health-wise. She didn't want to leave, he didn't want to leave her side. Ed contracts COVID. Ed dies. Barbara lives. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Barbara would have just as well said, okay, Jesus, I'm coming home with you too, with my husband? You bet you. God said, no. Barbara, you're going to live. And you're going to show the world around you what it means to have joy in the midst of trials and trouble and doubt and fear. I'm not telling you that Barbara doesn't have days. She has days. But she has shown us an example of what it means to have this posture of praise in one's life that can overcome the doubt and the fear of losing your best friend, your husband. It's real. I praise the Lord, and this is what I wrote down in my Bible study for Rick. I asked myself, Rick, what do you praise the Lord for? I praise him for his unchanging character. He is the same yesterday, today, and he's going to be the same tomorrow. I praise him for his unconditional love in my life. He died for me, right? For God so loved the world. And I praise him for his unyielding pursuit of my life. Listen, there is nothing, nothing we could do that I could do that's going to keep God from pursuing me. Nothing. There's no sin too great, there's no distance I could run that would discourage God from loving me. From the moment that I was born, God has been pursuing my heart. Amen. Praise God. In the midst of junk, I know He is still pursuing Rick, even when I'm not at my best. And here's the last point. To have that path to joy, I think we have to have a passion to believe, right? Now, we've tossed around that word believe a lot of times, but, I mean, a true belief in who Christ really is, Psalm 16, verse 11 David write those words at the last verse. He says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy, In your right hand are eternal pleasures. Church, do you believe that he is for you and not against you? When, when things don't go right, are we too quick to say, God, why did you do that? Can I believe that he is for me in those moments that doesn't go my way? Do do, do we believe that he has a plan for my life? Do I believe that he has forgiven me? Do I believe that he will comfort me? Do I believe that he will never leave me? Do I believe that he actually loves me? Do I believe that he died for me and he rose from the dead Do we believe these things? And you know what? For the general people, we all say yes. And yet, sometimes our lives do not reflect that kind of belief. We'll believe that, yes, I know there's a Jesus. I know he died for my sin. I have a relationship with him because I invited him in my life. But we don't believe him totally for all those other things in my life. A passion to believe can be summed up in these two things, and I'm almost done, or these two questions. Number one, and this is what I wrote for me, by the way, this is just a Bible study I'm having in my office. Rick, do you trust the Lord enough to say, not my will be done, but yours be done? Not my will, Lord, but your will. Do I trust him enough to say that, that all things, Rick, will work together for good? Do you believe that? And question number two, do I allow the joy of the Lord to be bigger than my doubts and fears? Do I allow that? Last scripture I'm going to have you turn to. I want you to turn. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to close here. Mark chapter 9. And I love this story because I think this is a picture of us. And when I say us, I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about church people people who are committed, people who walk with the Lord, even those even us. And by the way, if we have a hard time sometimes with this, don't you think the rest of the world does? Especially those who claim to know Jesus but really don't attend church or are out there doing their own thing. So this is a story of a man who had a demon-possessed son. Now, we all could probably say that we've had a demon-possessed son in our lives, right? Now, this was real, Okay. This was a real, and he had had been demon possessed for a long, long time. And the disciples had gathered somewhere in a courtyard somewhere, and there was an argument taking place, and he had had tried to go to the disciples and and ask them to, to get this demon out of him, drive him out of him, and the disciples couldn't. So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus asked him, he says in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the Father. The Father responded by saying, from childhood, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. Now I love this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The creator of this world, Jesus, if you can do anything, I love Jesus' response. Jesus said back to him, if you can, question mark, (laughs) <laughs> the dad says, "Jesus, <coughs> if <coughs> excuse me, Jesus, if you can do this." And Jesus responds, "What are you talking about? If I can, you're, you're talking about the one who created him, your son. I created him. You're talking about the one who was who was there in the creation of this whole planet. You're talking about the one who who shortly after the." It, it, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die for your son's sins and your sins and everybody around us. I'm that guy. If I can, love it. Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Look at verse 24, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because I can relate. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. And then what does he say? Help my what? Say it again. Help my what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Jesus, there's that date and time, and I gave you my life, and I meant it from my heart. I gave you everything, and you came in, and you, and, and now I'm a follower of yours. I'm a Christian. I believe you. I believe in who you are. But sometimes... We have some unbelief, don't we? Sometimes. Golly, really, Lord, can, can you work through that in my life? I mean, Lord, can, can, can I really get beyond this? That's a picture of unbelief, y'all. And at least the dad was honest, right? Lord, yes, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. That path to joy... It requires belief in our lives. Corrie Ten Boom, in the uncertainty of a cell, in her loneliness, in the death that was around her, in the cruelty of concentration camps, in the death of her father and the sister, through it all, her God was absolutely enough, right? Through all of her stuff, her God was absolutely enough. And this is what I said to Rick. I wrote this down. I said, Rick, as a genuine follower of Christ, you do not, you do not ever, ever give up. You don't. Listen, y'all, I'm an old athlete, right? Played basketball for a long, long time at the highest level. And I can remember having a coach in my life when I didn't want to go that extra sprint or I didn't want to do that one more thing on the basketball court. He looked at me and said, Rick, don't you ever give up. Or when I failed in the game before and I, I had a pity party about myself, he'd come me and he'd put my arm around and said, Rick, don't you give up. That's what Jesus does. When things don't go right. He puts our arms around us and he says, Don't you ever give up. And that's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, We never, we do not give up because we have a treasure to share. That's the gospel of Jesus. Because there is victory in the affliction. I can have joy because of that that victory. Because what is unseen is absolutely eternal. And that's my life. In Christ, I have eternal life. As Corey said, and I wrote this down in my office, Rick, never be afraid to trust that unknown future. To a known God. Never be afraid to trust that unknown future to a known God. I believe that. I believe it. Because he has never failed me. And he never will. One day, Pastor Marshall said, we're going to get to heaven. Amen? Amen? Amen. Until he looks you in the eye and says, okay, Rick, let's just go ahead and unfold your life. Thank the Lord he's forgiven me for all that stuff, right? Thank the Lord. Because there's joy and victory. And I know there's a God who cares about me. And he cares about you. And he cares about our family. I know that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for everything you do for us. Lord, I'm thankful over a year ago when you sat me down at my desk and I was lamenting and I was having a pity party. And Lord, you just opened my eyes. You said, Rick, there is no reason to have a pity party because you don't give up. You don't ever give up because I created everything and I have you in my right hand. You are a co-heir of Christ. You have everything you need. Trust me. Don't trust this world. Don't trust the things in this world. Trust me. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful in the midst of pain and suffering. Even sometimes, Lord Jesus, in my unbelief, you'll never leave us, nor will you ever, ever forsake us. It's your powerful and omnipotent name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.